Welcome to Ask the Experts. I'm your host, Michael DePoe Wilson, and this is the interview show that is powered by you, our listeners, where I ask questions that are submitted by you to our guests who are leaders in the field of anesthesiology. Now, just as a reminder, you can submit a specific question for an upcoming guest or just something more general to any future guest of the show, and you're always open to hearing suggestions from all of you about who our next guest should be. And to do that, you can contact us by email or on Twitter at Anesthesia News, and those details will be in the episode notes. Now let's get to the interview with this episode's guest, Dr. Karen Seibert. Dr. Seibert is a clinical professor of anesthesiology and the director of communications in the Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine at UCLA Health. She is also well known for her writing on trends in anesthesia, which have been published on KevinMD.com, the ASA Monitor, the New York Times, as well as her own blog, AppendPoint.com, and right here in Anesthesiology News. Now, without further ado, here's our interview with Dr. Karen Seibert. The Anesthesiology News e-newsletter is a free resource from the most widely read publication for the specialty. Get the latest clinical news and multimedia content delivered right in your inbox. Go to anesthesiologynews.com enews to sign up today. Okay, welcome to the show, Dr. Cyber, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Before we get started, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and some of your interests? Certainly. Um, Well, first of all, I'm a clinical professor of anesthesiology at UCLA in the Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine. And um, I've been the director of communications there for five years. I got that role because I have done a fair amount of writing for all kinds of different things, including my own blog, op-eds, and various media. And I have a background in journalism from way back when. Yeah, and and you are a pretty prolific writer, which is, um, you know, it's great. You get to share a lot of your thoughts that way. Well, you know what my husband always says? He says, Karen thinks everyone is entitled to her opinion. (laughs) Hey, that we we like to hear it. So we don't have a problem with that. And just kind of going along this vein, just kind of get a little bit more background on you before we get into, you know, the general topics that we want to discuss with you today. Could you tell our listeners when you first knew that you wanted to be an anesthesiologist? Yes, I can. It's it's sort of a funny story. When I was a little girl growing up in North Texas, little girls did not typically think of themselves as growing up to be doctors. If anything, we thought about being airline stewardesses or nurses or teachers or whatever back in the 60s. But I was my father's only daughter, and he really encouraged me a lot in, I think, ways that most daughters then did not enjoy. And he bought me this whole set of books that were about science. Um, They were geared toward, I guess, maybe eight to 10-year-olds, but one was all about dinosaurs and all about astronomy, and there was one called All About Great Medical Discoveries. And I must have read that book 10 times. 
but there was a chapter in it about anesthesia. And it's really sort of chilling to read because <laughs> it talked about, you know, how horrible operations were before the discovery of anesthesia and holding people down in the Civil War to amputate limbs. And for whatever bizarre reason, uncommon to little girls of my day, I thought that was really, really interesting. And so I kind of remember being interested in anesthesiology from a long time ago, that it would be so cool to be able to be a part of all those operations, but I never had any desire to be a surgeon. I thought the aspect of rendering people insensible so that they could tolerate surgery was a fascinating idea. So then fast forward to when I went to college, I was sort of ambitious and I read in, I can't remember if it was Time or Newsweek, that several of the Ivy League colleges were going co-ed and I had read The Side of Paradise and I thought I'll apply to Princeton. I, I knew about as much about Princeton as my cat did at the time, but anyway, I got in by a miracle Went there, loved it, but it was very, very intimidating. I had been to very mediocre public schools, and I was really not nearly up to speed in terms of science background. So I majored in English and did not even think about going pre-med or applying to medical school. But at the same time, I had done very well. And by the time I was done... I knew that there were a lot of people who were no smarter than I was who had gotten into medical school. <laughs> Several of them were still close friends. So um, I went back, actually had a baby in between, uh, went back, took pre-med courses and entered medical school at the age of 26 with a four-year-old child. Wow. Yeah, that's quite some story. And uh, I believe I'm remembering this correctly. You said that you were a journalist for a short time before that. Correct. And I think you're being a little modest. Could you share with the listeners where you actually worked beforehand? Yes. I uh, was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, both, I did an internship in New York City with the journal in between my junior and senior years in college, and then was a reporter in the Atlanta Bureau for a year. Well, I didn't know about the Atlanta thing. <laughs> That's actually where I grew up, so that's uh, that's exciting. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, no, that's I. I mean, I think that's great. You you really kind of did both sides of it at a high level early on in in your career, and that definitely comes through with your writing now. Thank you. Well, I was fortunate to get superb training. I mean, the the professors at Princeton, they did not suffer fools gladly. They did not want people majoring in English because they thought it was going to be an easy major. They sent them off to religion and sociology. But they, they made they made English actually a very rigorous department with comprehensive exams and a thesis to write and everything else. And they critiqued your writing ruthlessly, which is great. It's exactly what you need. And then the Wall Street Journal was the same way. Absolutely ruthless. They did not care about your feelings. There was no soft peddling it. If they thought it needed to be rewritten, they rewrote it and told you to do better next time. Okay. Well, yeah, it's definitely great training in both of those places. Um, so the last question, and then we'll get into some of the topics today. I, I'm assuming that all, all of this training that you had informed a little bit of your present and what you're interested in now. You know, What are some of the primary areas that you kind of focus in in your career today? Clinically, I, my specialty is thoracic anesthesia, um, which is interesting because we get to play with a lot of great toys, bronchoscopes and 
one lung tubes and ventilating only one lung at a time. I think my big decision point in medical school was whether to do pulmonary internal medicine or to do anesthesiology. And finally decided I really liked the operating room environment, but gravitating toward thoracic anesthesia was a logical outgrowth of that interest in pulmonary medicine. And then I do vascular anesthesia and big cancer cases, essentially more higher risk adult anesthesia is what I do in the operating room. And then um, outside of that, I've been extensively involved in our professional societies for a long time, which I think is such a great way to serve the profession, keep the profession going, as well as meet a lot of fascinating people. So I've been um, involved in the California Society of Anesthesiologists for a number of years. I was president from 2017 to 2018. And I'm now also on the board of directors of the LA County Medical Association and a delegate to the California Medical Association. And all these activities, not only are they interesting, but they really keep you current with what's going on in developments that are going to affect the specialty for years to come. I'm sure. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, th- thanks for giving us some background on that. And we'll go ahead and get straight into some of our topics that we want to talk to you about. On Ask the Experts, we have people submit questions. And uh, and sometimes we also like knowing uh, questions that have been asked of you either on Twitter or in, in other venues that we like to just kind of go back because they're interesting topics and we'd like to hear your uh, your feedback on those those ideas. And so that's actually where our first question comes from, a commentary that you wrote in Anesthesiology News last fall. Uh, and it was titled, Practice Without Fear, Advice for Residents on the Future of Our Profession. Uh, it was a great commentary, and we're going to include a link to that in uh, in the show notes here. Um, but we had a pretty interesting question that was asked of you by someone who is a pre-med, or at the time was pre-med at least. And um, and so I was going to read that question to you and get some of your feedback on, uh, on that topic and, and what you wrote about in that commentary. So the question came from a, uh, a reader on the website, Tony Foltz 29 and the reader said, Hi, Dr. Seibert. I have read a few of your articles in the past, and I find them to be very informative. I am currently pre-med, and I have had an interest in anesthesia since high school. I have noticed in your articles the common theme of doom and gloom when it comes to the future of anesthesiologists. My question is, why would someone spend all those years and education on becoming an anesthesiologist if there is a possibility of instability? It is discouraging to learn the field I am almost interested in is a dying one. Wow. I would disagree with the the basic concept that it's a dying profession. I certainly don't think that's true at all. In fact, there were theories back in the 1990s that anesthesiology would not be a growing field because there, there was the thought that all these procedures were becoming minimally invasive and there wouldn't be as much need for anesthesia. And actually, the reverse has been true. Every procedure that comes along, whether it's minimally invasive or not, still needs anesthesia. So um, in the 1990s, we were having trouble getting residents or getting medical students to choose anesthesiology for a residency. And that's not true at all now. It's, it's really quite competitive, not as competitive as dermatology or orthopedic surgery, but it's still, it's still quite competitive. So doom and gloom. Well, first of all, 
we have to put it out there that I'm the child of depression era parents. So I was always just brought up to assume the worst and then any surprises would be pleasant. So so that is sort of sort of the background that I come from. I always think, oh God, oh God, and then and then well maybe it's not quite so bad. Which is frankly better than um, relentless optimism and then you know being doomed to disappointment. Medicine as a whole is under challenge. I don't think anesthesiology is necessarily worse than a lot of other fields in that regard. Right now in this country, and I've written quite a bit about this, but there's, there's still more to be said, there is a relentless anti-intellectualism that is a threat to all of medicine and frankly, all intellectual endeavor, period. I was actually just reading a book about theology, which is an interest of mine, and the point was made there that everybody's an amateur theologian these days, <laughs> that they don't want to respect expert opinion no matter how many years, decades somebody's put into getting their PhD and, you know, studying Greek and whatever, you know, they want to hear it, they want their internet search to, to be the answer. There's a wonderful book by uh, a man named Tom Nichols called The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. And in there, he makes the point that people are no longer merely uninformed. What they are is aggressively wrong. <laughs> they don't want, and they don't want anyone to tell them any different. So that's the trend that you're seeing with independent practice for nurse anesthetists, independent practice for nurse practitioners. In our relentlessly democratic country, no one wants to believe that anyone is better, smarter, faster, better trained, more knowledgeable, more expert. They want everything to be down to kind of a common denominator. And they don't like, they feel that it's hierarchical or paternalistic to feel that actually maybe the doctor does know best. <laughs> you know, that's just, that's not, not really the, the current trend. And what that unfortunately dovetails with is the need on the part of the government and the desire on the, the part of insurers to pay physicians less and less and less and less. So you put those two factors together and it's not really a rosy picture for medicine overall. I think primary care is at as much or greater risk from independent practice for nurse practitioners as anesthesiology is, you know, from independent practice for nurse anesthetists. I think these trends are powerful. I think they're affecting all of medicine, and I don't know when or if they're going to turn around. So I would say to the pre-med student, don't think that anesthesiology is uniquely affected. We may be, you know, we're unique in some respects, but not overall. I mean, look at radiology. Their business is moving to Mumbai. Now, now that you know where you can get a you can get a you don't need a, an in-person radiologist to interpret a, a CT scan or an MRI you can ship it overseas for a fraction of the cost in real time so these threats are these threats are going on everywhere disruptive innovation really is exactly what's happening I was just actually on a panel discussion that um Princeton put on, my class put on for pre-meds at, uh, who are there now, 
And it was a really interesting panel because it was a lot of my friends and peers who've been physicians for a long, long time telling, you know, pre-meds why we went into medicine and what we love about it. And it was surprising how many of us are still working at a time when a lot of people have retired and at a time when if you're in athletics or you're in Silicon Valley or whatever, you're over the hill at 35. And here we all are (laughs) still going strong. And actually, medicine is one of the few fields where age and experience still do garner some respect. So in those those areas, it's really it's really wonderful. But I think the message that we sent to all those pre-med students was medicine is hard. It's hard work. There's a huge amount of responsibility. There are a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of back aches, a lot of aching legs and feet. Um, don't do it unless you love it. It's too hard. If you're if you're, you know, on the fence between medicine and investment banking, go into investment banking. That's, you know, right. just, just don't do this it's not it's not for you you really need to love medicine be endlessly fascinated with it and love taking care of patients i think that comes first you touch on quite a few um topics that that come up a lot and we actually have our, our second question you touched on this a little bit is is right along lines of um, you know, you, you have the pressure that you're, you're talking about um, kind of eating away at the, the practice standards uh, of what anesthesiologists do. And then there's also the kind of, a, you know, paying anesthesiologists to do the work, um, you know, paying what anesthesiologists uh, warrant to do the work. And so that's where this question is. And it's actually kind of a, it's a, it's a tweet and it was um, a tweet response. So I'll read you both tweets. So the first one is a story. And it's from at Fuzzy Mittens, which is the anesthesiologist on Twitter. Uh, and her uh, her story is that she was negotiating with a hospital admin for a transplant anesthesiology director position when the C-whatever-O said, quote, I don't understand how you justify this salary. All you have to do is put them to sleep and then come back a few hours later to wake them up. And so that's the first tweet. So then the second tweet was, uh, a, it was a retweet and it was Dr. Uh, Emily M at DR Emily M. And she said, uh, you know, I don't think this perception is far outside the norm, unfortunately. What say you anesthesia peeps? How can we better educate the public and even our own colleagues about what we do as anesthesiologists? And she included you in on that tweet and, and, and invited a few other prominent anesthesiologists to kind of have this debate. And so I wanted to get your take on this here on the podcast. You know, what, what are some things that you can do to better educate the public and even you know, other uh, colleagues in the hospitals about what anesthesiologists do and, and what the value is there? It's a lot, I know. <laughs> Sorry. I honestly think it's hopeless. Okay. I really do. I don't think, because when I go get, I go to the bedside to get informed consent from a patient for me to put them to sleep. So I have to thread the needle between legitimately telling them about risks and benefits and scaring them to death. I don't want to scare them to death. In fact, And I beat up on my residents sometimes about this because they'll go up to some poor person with lung cancer who's about to get their chest cracked open and half a lung taken out. And they'll start telling them, well, you could die because of anesthesia. You could have a stroke or this or that or the other. And I'm going, stop it. That's just mean. (laughs) This person, if they want to survive, they have no choice but to let us put them to sleep and take out half their lung. Okay, this is, you know, telling them 
more about the risks of anesthesia is not fair. Not, it's just unkind, you know. So I just want that person to think this nice lady is going to take me in there and put me to sleep and then wake me up when they're done. That's all I need for that person to know right then, really and truly. That's not the time for education. I think um, the trouble with having people understand the complexity of what we do is that they then have to understand everything that can go wrong and how close people are to death at the moment in between when we induce coma and we put the breathing tube in. That if we don't get the breathing tube in fast, they're going to die. <laughs> and, you know, just do we really want them to think about that? I'd say, on the whole, the answer is no. But I would like the CFOs and the CEOs to think about it for a second. If it was that easy, why would it take four years of college and four years of medical school and four years of residency, plus or minus a year or two of fellowship to get really, really good at it? That's a good, yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, it's, there's more to it than that. I could talk about it till next Tuesday, but the CFO doesn't really want to know that. What they want to know is, can I hire a nurse that can get as good outcomes as you can most of the time at a risk-benefit ratio for me that any increased incidence of malpractice cases will still be outweighed by the lower salaries that I pay. That's the only equation that the CFO is interested in. And that is the sad truth. Um, and more and more as states, um, as states pass laws about independent practice for nurse anesthetists, there was just a hospital in Wisconsin that a letter went public where they said, oh, we're just going to have all nurse anesthetists. It'll be fine. The outcomes will be the same. There are hospitals already in California that are like that. I don't know that that's a trend that's going to stop anytime soon. And here's why. And we talked about this a little bit in our etherist discussion where I took the side of saying, no, I don't think we're going to have too many anesthesiologists. I don't, I don't think that there's going to be a shortage at all. Right. And the reason for that is, again, technology is really disrupting this, this industry. And I hazard a guess that OR anesthesia practice is going to evolve into a model that's more like what ICU practice is now, where there are physicians that supervise, you know, 10 or 15 beds in an ICU. You don't have one-to-one or one-to-two or one-to-four physicians-to-patients in an ICU. You have nurses there, and you have the ability to monitor remotely to get a lot of information from a bank of monitors on all those patients, kind of like a control tower. And I see no technical or other reason why OR anesthesiology can't evolve toward a comparable model that would be more cost-effective in the first place, and secondly, would frankly be more interesting from the physician point of view. I love doing my own cases, but a lot of time when I'm doing my own cases, I'm doing tasks that a technician, a pharmacist, a nurse, there are very few physician-level actual tasks that are going on. There's physician-level decision-making, but the execution doesn't all need to be done by a physician. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, it's, it does sort of sound doom and gloom when you put it like that. <laughs> um, 
I can't help it. It's just what, you know, it's just what I see. I just watch the tea leaves. You know, I don't, I don't make this stuff up. I just keep my eyes and ears open. I wrote a column for Kevin MD back in like 2012 or 2013 about what was going to happen with mergers and acquisitions. It was all true. But it's not because I'm a genius. It's just because I talk to people who are geniuses like Stan Stead, who's a former vice president for professional affairs of the ASA. (laughs) And I listen to what they have to say. And I read the Wall Street Journal and I read things. And I pay attention and I write what I see happening. And generally, since I do my research, it's pretty on point. Right. And and we actually, I think, have a little part of the ethers that you go into that as well with the, the mergers. And um, you know, obviously, we'll make sure people can get access to that as well, because um, you do go into a lot of depth on why there won't be a shortage and, and the future of anesthesiology like you laid out there. We do have a third question here that we um, had submitted to ask you, and it, again, goes along these same lines. This is kind of the trend, right, in, in the specialty. And so this is from, on Instagram, from the Datastesiologist. There's a lot of clever names out there with anesthesiologists. Um, and he asks, we have to distinguish ourselves outside of the OR, but how do we protect our profession and our patients from the increasingly hostile lobby for CRNA independent practice? And then he gives an example. So as an example, an exceptionally skilled and compassionate and involved anesthesiologist colleague witnessed a CRNA tell the patient, quote, I'm the one who takes care of you. He just does the paperwork. So it goes along the same lines, but this is kind of right to the core of this idea that CRNAs are like in this Wisconsin hospital are just going to do the work that anesthesiologists have always done. So you know, it's along the same lines as this question too, you know, how do you protect the profession and, and how do you make sure that the patients understand the importance of having an anesthesiologist in on their care? The concept of protecting the profession, that's a guild mentality that I certainly subscribe to. I'm proud of my profession. I love it. But efforts to protect anything are always rear guard actions they are generally doomed to failure. Either the profession succeeds or it doesn't succeed. Trying to put artificial protections around it have the same problems that tariffs do. You know, it just, it's a concept that is fraught with peril because it implies that it's so fragile that it needs protection. Profession isn't fragile. Anesthesiology isn't fragile. What we need to do is define the work in anesthesiology that's physician-level decision-making and separate that from the execution. Nowhere else is that a difficult concept. It's not a difficult concept in ICU medicine. My son's a pulmonary critical care fellow. He doesn't mix up the antibiotics and give them into the IV. He orders them, the pharmacy mixes them up, the nurse administers them. Only in anesthesiology do I get to do all three, and then people complain if we don't put the label on the syringe properly. I mean, this is ridiculous. You know, the level of menial tasks that go into the actual administration of any anesthetic is no different than it is in an ICU. It's a lot of menial tasks, but somehow we have defined all of this 
as physician practice, which is silly. It just doesn't make any sense. The CEO of the corporation is not making the widgets. He or she is directing the manufacturer of the widgets and all the processes that, that go into that. And we have got to redefine this work. We've got to redefine the profession, not protect it. We've got to redefine it. And we've got to get away from the fact that it's oddly soothing to sit there in the operating room and line up all your syringes in a row and make sure that the labels are all straight. That appeals to every molecule of my obsessive nature. It's still not really worth a physician's salary or a physician training to do that. The work that is physician decision-making is the upfront. It's the preoperative evaluation. It's deciding, is the person fit for surgery? It's deciding what kind of anesthetic technique will be best. Delegating the execution of those decisions to someone else is totally rational. But... We have turned it into a battlefield, and that is a battle that we are going to lose and that we should lose because it's not cost effective. Uh, right. And I, I don't think that's, yeah, I don't think that's the answer <laughs> that people expected. But yeah, I mean, you, you lay out a pretty uh, compelling case for it there. And I, I do think people are going to appreciate um, hearing that perspective for sure. Uh, so, so, what I said in my article for Anesthesiology News, and what I continue to say is don't think that you're going to finish anesthesiology residency and go out there and do continue to do all the tasks that you did when you were a resident and have that be a lifetime career. I think that residents these days need to specialize. They need to do fellowships. They need to establish physician-level training and competencies that go way beyond can you give anesthesia for this lap coli or this hysterectomy and not kill the patient. That's a minimum standard. We need to be training physicians who go so far beyond that. And I also think, <laughs> I also think that residency, the whole concept of residency needs to, needs to evolve into something different. Um, again, why are we teaching people to mix up antibiotics? That's, that's crazy. That's a pharmacy task. Why isn't that a pharmacy task? Now, I don't know. It just isn't. But um, I think that residency programs could also specialize. We have residents who are much more interested in the business and management side of the specialty than they are in the clinical side. We have residents who are interested more in critical care. We have residents who are interested more in pediatrics or OB or, you know, what have you, I think. But right now, and the ABA is a big part of the problem here, we have this core subject matter that everybody is expected to learn all of. And it just keeps expanding, so it's harder and harder. When I was a resident, the residency was only two years. Now it's three years. As long as we keep on expanding the material and not allowing people to specialize, you know, it's going to become harder and harder. And all residency programs shouldn't specialize in the same thing. UCLA is turning out to be a really great research institution, but not all residents want to do research. 
So I think, you know, we should have programs that emphasize research more. I think we should have programs that emphasize other things. And the match system is flawed because it just puts a peg in a hole without any ability to differentiate who's better suited to which program. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting uh, topic, especially we're just a few weeks uh, past this year's match day. Um, Is is there are there ideas out there about alternatives to to this process and maybe how you can get people to be a little bit more specialized in different programs that they're suited to? Or is this something that's... No, this is just something that when you ask me to prognosticate about the future, that's the kind of thing I start to think about. But right now, the ABA has got it so locked up, you know, and if you want to get board certified, this is what you've got to do. And these are the hoops you've got to jump through. And these are the exams you have to pass. And there is no ability whatsoever you know, without changing that whole board certification system for residency programs to evolve in ways that they might actually want to evolve in. And this is this is a real part of the problem. And the ABA is really a throwback to the guild system. This is what you have to do to get into the guild. So that actually leads us into, so we're kind of done with the listener generated questions. And, but we do have a section of questions where we kind of want to get into some topics that, you know, you could say that you want people to ask you these questions more. And so we've kind of, we're, we're stepping on the toes of one of these questions. And, uh, and so that for the first question we've got for you is, uh, why are you so outspoken against MOCA or MOCA? Maintenance of certification in anesthesiology. Well, Part of the reason is because I can, because I don't have to do it. So I am, I have board certification for life because I was board certified before the current system of renewal of certification came into being. So sometimes the term used is grandfathered into it, which fine, whatever, (laughs) I don't really care. But, um, you know, if you went, came to my house on any given evening. You'd probably find my husband, who's the chief of cardiac anesthesia at USC, sitting on the sofa looking at his laptop and looking at echo um, videos and reading journals. And you'd probably find me doing something else related to my job. We both read voraciously. We do that stuff all the time. Neither one of us is in MOCA. But we consider that part of the job of being a physician. I find it deeply insulting that anyone would imply that either one of us isn't keeping up with our field. I mean, that's just patent nonsense. You know, we wouldn't be where we are in the profession if we didn't keep up. And frankly, that's what makes it endlessly interesting. If you didn't read and keep up and change your practice and evolve and use new drugs and learn new techniques, I'd be bored too. I'd be burned out. But there's always something, there's always something new. But what maintenance of certification does, and again, I blame the boards for this, they lock it in. You know, at first they said, okay, so every 10 years, you're going to have to pay us a couple of thousand dollars and take an exam that we're going to force down your throat. I do think examination at the end of residency is reasonable. You do want to you do want to provide evidence of certain core competencies that somebody actually bothered to read the basic textbooks and learn the basic stuff. Fine. Past that point, 
my practice is completely different from my husband's. My friends who are in community private practice, they do all kinds of cases. They do adults, peds, regional OB, everything. I don't do any peds, any OB. They don't do any thoracic, a lot of them. You know, your practice starts to evolve in different directions. So there's no maintenance of certification exam that's going to be fair but in any sense of the word, to anybody who's been out in practice more than a year or two, because you're going to gravitate to the things that you like and are good at, or you're going to be in a very, very general practice with none of the really high-tech stuff that's done in the academic medical centers or the big city quaternary referral centers. So there's no way you can do an exam that really has any meaning. Okay. So... They threw out the exam, and they had this thing called the vision, the vision program, <laughs> the vision project that was now supposed to rethink uh, maintenance of certification. They came out with this thing called the MOCA Minute, which is a bunch of questions that everybody who's in it has to do every quarter. And you can see it on social media and on Facebook. Oh, God, you know, the, the questions are due. Has anybody done them? Are they as stupid as the last set? Uh, I mean, the comments are just sadly hilarious. But these people, these poor people are paying thousands of dollars to do this. It is an exercise in futility. It is gamesmanship. We're all good at taking multiple choice questions. We can take multiple choice questions in our sleep. I can take a multiple choice question in a field that I know nothing about and get a halfway decent score just because I've taken so many multiple choice questions that I know that it's neither all or never, you know, anything that sounds too extreme probably is, you know, you just, <laughs> it's not, this is not rocket science. This right. is how we all got through medical school mm-hmm. is based on our ability to take multiple choice tests. So I can speak out against it because I'm not locked into it and nobody is going to fire me because of anything I say about MOCA or the fact that I'm not in MOCA. But it is getting to be that you're not going to be able to get a license. You're not going to be able to get a job. You're not going to be able to get anything without it. It is, frankly, a monopoly. There are lawsuits in progress um, asserting that this is restraint of trade. The FTC is actually interested. I don't know how far any of this will go. But it is particularly, it's the boards preying on the young. It's not preying on those of us who've been around long enough because we can actually we can, A, we can afford it, and B, we don't care. And, you know, the ones of us who are really old enough don't even have to do it. It's the young people that are coming out who could least afford it that are totally locked into this system and, and see no exit. You know, so we have another question for you that I that I know I was curious about when I when I discovered this. Um, it uh, you have long been a, a really active um, contributor on Twitter. Uh, you know, as you were saying, sharing your opinion, sharing a lot of thoughts and and insight into uh, the specialty of anesthesiology. And then it just so happens that recently you're no longer there. You can't find uh, you can't find Doctor Seibert on uh, Twitter anymore. So, could you tell us why did you leave Twitter? It was a very abrupt decision. I think it has gotten increasingly unkind over time. I mean, there have always been trolls, but I think the trolls are out in such force now that I have, I started to find it a really unpleasant landscape, you know, deeply unsettling. Some of the stuff on there 
it, it gives you the worst side of human nature. Now, I think there's a great deal of good to be done on social media. I actually am one of the people with access to our department's official Twitter account. So on that, we disseminate, you know, developments in our department. We congratulate people who've published things and won awards and draw attention to new articles and new research and and all kinds of things. And I think it's terrific for that. But on the personal level, I have my own opinions. And at this point, I'm not that interested in putting them out for public scrutiny. In other words, I think that the personal gain for me of expressing an opinion is deeply outweighed by the potential for backlash and ugliness and unhappiness in my life that I don't need. I I just think it's too bad. If there's a trend that I really deplore in medicine right now, as well as in the rest of life, it's that people are just really splintering into their identity groups. And, you know, it's an us versus you And if I'm in this ethnic group, I have no business expressing an opinion about anything that would affect another group. You know, issues of racism and sexism are just so front and center right now. And if you fall afoul of that, it's really like touching the third rail. And I just decided, do I do I need this in my life? No, I really don't. I'm just going to I'm just going to keep any political and social opinions to myself and um, try to focus on taking good care of my patients and doing a good job communicating about the department and leave the rest of it alone. That certainly makes a lot of sense to me. I I can definitely understand that. You know, we've had a chance to go through a lot of, and mostly, you know, it's it's policy and, and politics um, about the specialty. But you know, we'd like to take a step back from all of that and get a chance to just sort of talk to you about some interesting things that maybe you're uh, you're sort of experiencing. You know, not in a clinical or, or in a you know p- politics of the specialty sort of way. So we have our, our third round of questions, uh, which is a you know kind of a, like let's get into some personal interesting things that they. Uh, you're enjoying lately. And the first one is a very uh, kind of benign, you know, what is one of the most entertaining things that you've enjoyed lately? So it could be a movie, TV show, maybe it's a podcast, you know, I- anything that you've just really enjoyed uh, getting to watch or, or read or anything like that. Well, if there's one thing that I would love to have, is just more time to read it, that there's never, there's never enough time. I, I do love, I'm a sucker for the crown. <laughs> and I really like I really like history. A couple of years ago, my husband and I went on a a tour that was sponsored through you know my alumni association, and it was a, in the Mediterranean and the Middle East. You know, sites of great naval battles in history. So you have to be pretty much of a history nerd. Do you want to want to do that? But it went through everything from you know Athens and you know Troy to, you know, the World War II battles in Sicily, and it was at, you know, Malta and the Crusades, and it was totally, totally amazing. So definitely a sucker for history. My father was, you know, I I mentioned him at the start about being the person who probably um, gave me the most encouragement in my career really early on. But he actually, when he was 17, lived in Texas. You know, the family's from Texas originally, got an appointment to West Point, but he failed the eye exam. 
in a time when you couldn't go to West Point if you needed glasses and contacts didn't exist yet. So my father, at the age of 17, got on the bus, went up to Canada, which was in the war because Britain was in the war. And this was before Pearl Harbor, so the U.S. was not yet in the war. Went up to Canada, crossed the border. Canadians did not care. If you were an upright mammal who could fog a mirror, they would enlist you in the army. So (laughs) my father, who looked 12, told them he was 21 joined the Canadian Army. Next thing you know, he's um, landing at Juneau Beach on (laughs) D-Day and um, came back and he had married my mother somewhere along the way and came back to Texas and the government said, well, you've lost your citizenship because you swore allegiance to a foreign army. And my father said, yes, but I was underage and he got away with it. So he maintained his American citizenship. So I think probably his influence is why I I love watching anything about World War II. And there's a great new show on PBS now called Atlantic Crossing, which is about the Norwegian uh, royal family actually coming to America. So I'm very, in in World War II, you know, that Norway was supposed to be neutral. But then, of course, Germany invaded it. Yes, hard hard to be neutral then. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's all very interesting. I mean, so you and you said your father was he was seventeen when he seventeen. Wow, that's right. amazing! What a story! <laughs> what a story! Yeah, he was he was quite a quite a character. So, I think we all wish those of us who had relatives in World War II all we always wish they told us more stories, but they didn't want to talk about it a lot of the time. So we have to have to kind of reconstruct it yeah it's too bad and it's very understandable at the same time yeah well thank you for that that's fantastic uh the very last question we have for you today is kind of going against the gloom and doom uh topics we were talking about earlier uh you know what is something that is inspiring you either about our present situation or about the future um you know like maybe it's a quote or something that you've kind of experienced lately that just kind of gives you a little bit of hope about the future or or maybe a little bit of hope about right now? Well, in this field, certainly when you look at how far we've come in terms of technology, I was thinking about that this morning, getting ready to talk to you. I mean, part of the reasons why I think physicians got so involved in giving anesthesia is it was so easy to kill people before we had all the monitors, before we had pulse oximetry, I mean, people used to do cases even without EKGs not that long ago. I mean, I can remember using pulse oximetry before it was in common use. I mean, I did lots and lots of cases without pulse oximetry when I was a resident without entitled carbon dioxide. And so the physical diagnostic skills that you needed then, they don't come into play now. I mean, the ability to get people through these amazing procedures, just what we're able to do, it really is endlessly fascinating. And I I love teaching the residents, but I love teaching them from the perspective that I know what it was like without this, but you still need to look at the patient. You know, trying to teach that combination of physical diagnosis with all the technology, that's really the interface that is hard to balance sometimes but it's still fun and it's it's fun to see somebody's face light up when they really get something 
the first time or you know there's that aha moment that's what's that's what's really that's what's really fun about it i i feel very fortunate to still be able to teach and to feel as though all these years have given me a fair amount to impart that's 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 a great gift well, that's excellent. So that's a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is our third episode of Ask the Experts, and it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. My pleasure entirely. Thank you so much to Dr. Seibert for being our guest here on Ask the Experts. And thank you to all of you for joining us. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating or a review, because it really helps other people to discover the show as well. Now I would like to formally announce that our next guest for the show is going to be Dr. Cheryl Gooden. Dr. Gooden is a pediatric anesthesiologist at the Yale New Haven Hospital in Connecticut. She is also an associate professor of anesthesiology at the Yale School of Medicine, and one of her areas of expertise is pediatric airway management. If you have a question you would like for Dr. Gooden to answer, please send it to us either by email or on Twitter, where you can find us at, at Anesthesia News. The links for both will be in the episode description. As always, thank you for listening. Anesthesiology News presents Ask the Experts was produced this month by me, Michael DePoe Wilson. It was edited by Ken Christensen. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Studios. Our editorial director is James Pruden. The rest of the team is Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, Blake Dennis, Betty Zong, Christian Janicone, Lucia Scanlon, Kwang Yi Chung, Sophia Lee, and Sam Steinfeld. Ask the Experts is a project of Anesthesiology News, the most widely read publication for the specialty and the McMahon Group.